Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week, we are going to be talking to Julie McGill, who is a vice president of supply chain strategy and insights at Food Logic, which is part of Trustwell. So we'll be talking about the food chain. We'll be talking about uh, traceability and food safety. And we've spent quite a lot of time on that, but for good reason. As technologists, no one buys our technology just for the sake of it. Uh, we have to find markets that are driving adoption. And this is a market that has a lot of drivers for new technology. Focus is essential for solution designers and entrepreneurs and businesses of all stripes. So we believe that this is a really interesting area to look at. And let's face it, we all eat food and we want to know where the food is coming from. Uh, and on this week's podcast, you'll learn a bit about what's going on behind the curtain. Uh, we'll be touching on the use cases, the technology, the standards, a few of the controversies, and Julie McGill happens to be a great conversationalist, and she has some hidden parts to her past that you might never guess. Uh, so stay for the second part of that to uh, hear a bit more about that. But before we move on to that interview, I just want to say a few words about a, a sad subject. This show is all about IoT. We're a podcast, but I'm a podcast enthusiast, not just as a uh, producer of a podcast, but I uh, listen to a bunch. And one of the staples of my diet for many years has been Stacey Higginbotham and Kevin Toffel's Internet uh, of Things podcast, uh, Stacey on IoT. She's a great writer. She's an ex-analyst. Uh, uh, the chemistry between the two of them is amazing. And so I was very sad to hear that it's the end of their podcast. So I do recommend that uh, people delve into that. There's a lot of back episodes that have some very insightful uh, interviews and observations and some great conversations. Uh, and I heard this news when I was cycling home from the office. And then uh, when I heard Stacy talk about her recommendations of other podcasts that you could listen to, and she mentioned this one, as uh, potentially a recipient of the baton uh, from people that um, listened to their podcast. I was really, really touched. I was quite emotional. I actually almost fell off my bike. So if you are listening or watching this podcast as a result of that, 
a recommendation. Thank you for giving us a try. And thank you so much to Stacy and Kevin for producing an amazing body of work. And I am deeply touched that you recommended people to this podcast. So let's get back to business. Let's get back to Julie McGill. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We really lift up the covers and look uh, at what's happening in this rapidly moving driver for the adoption of IoT, which is food safety, food quality, food traceability. Enjoy it. The Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT Podcast is sponsored by Williot, bringing intelligence to every single thing. Julie, welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to be peeling the proverbial, proverbial onion or unpacking the Russian doll, choose your metaphor. Um, uh, I want to talk about food with you. We all eat. Um, so it's relevant to absolutely everyone, even if you stumbled on the podcast. But the business of food is fascinating and it takes a lot of technology, uh, software, um, auto ID technology, IoT technology, and Food Logic, uh, which is uh, the company you work for, which is part of Trustwell, yep. uh, which is the outer part of the onion, just to get back to my metaphor, um, is dealing with uh, a bunch of interesting companies, uh, some giants, uh, Chipotle and McDonald's and Tyson and so forth. And, uh, and the use cases are quite varied. So um, let's get into it. And um, how do you explain to people who Trustwell are? Yes. So uh, Trustwell, uh, you know, our company is all about food safety and compliance for both the food and supplements uh, industries. And so um, in the fall of 2022, um, ESHA Research, which has the Genesis platform, which is uh, nutrition facts panels, allergens, uh, ingredient statements. Um, we became, you know, we came together to form Trustwell. And so, you know, we have the, the um, you know, the recipe and the facts panel, et cetera, coming together with food logic, which is um, supplier management. So all the documents, audits, assessments, uh, everything that we need, you know, uh, all that paperwork to do business, right? Prove to me that you are who you say you are. If this is fair trade, organic coffee, right? I've got to give you all that documentation and provenance to, to back it up. Um, Food Logic also has incident management. So as things are moving through the supply chain, uh, back of my store, I open up a box of tomatoes and they're moldy, right? I can open up the app, kick off an incident and, and um, you know, get that item replaced, report the problem and things like that. The next part of the, the um, Food Logic platform, we have a recall management tool. And so we all know recalls, right? Time is of the essence. And so um, using uh, phone, email, and text, uh, companies can build uh, uh, templates because, you know, class one, we got to get things off the shelf right away, right? Class Maybe. two, class three. And it, for any of them, we need to get things off the shelf, but you need to notify teams give them instructions on how to, you know, do I destroy it? Is the distributor going to come pick this up? You know, what do I do with this item, et cetera? And so um, the tool has a whole set of templates and communication protocols, but then it has a dashboard that collects all the information. 
And, you know, with most things with the FDA, you have to show your work. So you can, you know, print a report that shows here's everywhere that I, you know, who I contacted, what I sent, the all the actions that were taken. And the neat thing is it has, you know, different parts of the the um, dashboard have things like a heat map that shows, okay, I've sent out the message. And then as the clock is ticking, things are turning yellow and red and you're understanding, hey, why isn't this group, you know, taking action and you can do escalation procedures and all sorts of cool things. Uh, but the piece that I knew, Food Logic, uh, when I came to Food Logic, what I knew them for was traceability. And um, that really was the origin of Food Logic. When mad cow disease was uh, uh, happening up in Canada, um, the founders of Food Logic created uh, some tools to track all of the head of cattle. And so from that uh, first you know, product that they created, they said, wait, we could use this for tracking food across all foods in the, the supply chain. And so that traceability platform uh, is where I really intersected uh, with Food Logic because I was working at GS1 at the time. And uh, uh, the standards that uh, the Food Logic traceability platform is built on are, are GS1 standards. So things like global trade item numbers, global location numbers, critical tracking events and things like that. So um, the the uh, Food Logic traceability platform can track um, foods, you know, literally from farm uh, to plate, um, capturing all those critical tracking events, connecting the dots, if you will, right, of all of that disparate event data using things like lot numbers, uh, those um, global identifiers, and things like that so that companies have full visibility of their supply chains um, and are able to, um, you know, utilize that data, not only for compliance, um, for things like trading partner traceability programs, uh, for man, uh, federal regulations like FISMA 204, um, but also using that data in your um, own four walls, right? You have better visibility to your inventory, freshness, um, you know, even product satisfaction, right? So, so it's um, it's interesting bringing these two companies together here at Trustwell. Uh, we really complement one another, right? This 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 was mm -hmm. not two similar tools coming together. It was two very important parts of the um, supply chain operations coming together to form one uh, company. Yes, and I think this is a interesting. Um... Because again, we all eat food and we want to find <laughs> yep. out what's in it. Uh, and we yep. also want it to be safe. Um, but, you know, this podcast comes, its roots are in auto ID technology, mm -hmm. IoT technology. And that's great. It's really important to understand that technology. But on its own, uh, uh, no one's going to buy it unless there's uh, an application. And I've become very interested in food because it's driven by so many uh, important drivers for adoption of the technology. And so we should probably get into how what you're doing is driving the kind of auto ID technology that we tend to focus on. Yes. Um, but I think without companies like Food Logic, um, that it's very difficult to sell uh, an RFID tag, a Bluetooth tag, uh, barcode uh, uh, printing uh, machine just in the abstract. You need powerful applications that have got budget and adoption that are really unlocking value. And you create an unlock value and uh, 
you know, can harness budgets to be spent on the kind of cool techie stuff that a lot of us on that side of the house like to uh, like to sell. So, um, so many things I want to ask you about, but maybe we should start off with adoption of the kind of platform that you sell and how pervasive is it? You know, what are the alternatives to someone saying, look, we're going to do this properly. We're going to buy a platform uh, and just cobbling something together with a few, I, I don't know what people do if they don't buy uh, uh, Logic or, or, or something that is in that category. Um, do you have a problem with people saying, ah, oh, we don't really need to automate this. Uh, you know, hopefully the FDA won't ask too many difficult questions and we'll never get a recall. Is that uh, is that a problem? Right. Uh, well, and and I will say, like um, traceability drivers over the past, um, you know, I, I would say probably the past 15, 20 years have been varied, right? Many of the traceability programs either came out of an outbreak, right? So the produce industry in the early 2000s had a number of outbreaks that um, the FDA and other parties, they could not figure out the source of the problem. And so entire categories were decimated. So spinach would be a good example, right? Mm -hmm. Spinach outbreaks back in like 2006, um, they've never recovered. They've never gotten back to their same numbers. Part of it was, uh, you know, because they couldn't identify, you know, which products, if you remember, everything came off the shelves, everything. Companies who had nothing to do with the issue, right? Their products were pulled off, you know, along with everyone else's. So you think about things that we now focus on today, sustainability, uh, waste uh, management and things like that, um, you know, not having the visibility forced, you know, this just cleaning of the shelves, but also hurt an entire industry. And so, um, you know, I like to joke that, you know, spinach hasn't recovered because Kale jumped in and said, hey, I'm, I'm good for you too. Now, you know, people can argue Kale versus spinach, but Big kale. It's a formidable entity. It, 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 and it's a bit rougher than spinach. I'll say that too. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, big picture that industry had to take, they took action and created something called the produce traceability initiative, which was focused on product identification and lot level traceability. And the reason for that is because the produce, um, you know, companies said we can't go through that again. Right. If I'm a tomato guy or a lettuce guy, et cetera, you know, companies, literally companies can go out of business overnight if something like that just takes away their entire, you know, uh, uh, harvest. And so they recognized they needed to take action. So they came together as an industry, created the Produce Traceability Initiative. Um, other drivers have been things like trading partners, right? So we've seen trading partners like the Chipotle's and Chick-fil-A's and CKE and others who said, well ahead of government regulation for traceability, I want to have whole chain traceability in my supply chain. And we also see that in grocery, right? Like both, you know, in the food industry. So so those drivers, right, they've brought their um, trading partners to the table saying, here's what I need you to do and why. And for some produce, they're like, oh, I'm already doing that. Great. What, you know, let me do that. But other categories you know, perhaps the the um, meat had some pretty good traceability programs in place, but um, you know the you know say the mustard or the 
uh, buns or whatever. Some of those other categories, the French fries might not have been as aware of, hey, why do I need this? Right. And their partners had to educate them as to why they needed them to be a part of this program. And for many, they made it a mandate. So I was contractually obligated to do this to be your supplier. Do you find adoption of your platform is being driven upstream or downstream? Is it being driven by the customer-facing businesses or by the producers? Yep. Great question. So so um, before FISMA 204 was finalized, most, not all, but most were the end of the chain. And they were saying, I want to have you know, full visibility of my supply chain. I want to understand where my products are and, you know, be able to manage traceability and, and, and things like that. Inventory, they, you know, they can use it for inventory management and other things. Um, but there were some partners who were um, doing it at the beginning of the chain. And now with FISMA 204, we're seeing more and more um, uh, customers coming in from across the chain, right? Because mm. now I have a regulatory mandate where I have to collect enhanced traceability records. I have to do this enhanced traceability record keeping, and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to capture this data? Where am I going to store it? Um, and for many companies, their data sits in lots of different systems. So they mm -hmm. want to bring it all together. So they have one version of the truth, right? Here's all, all those records and then be able to run reports for compliance, be able to extract that data um, and for FISMA 204, that's within 24 hours, right? So, um, you know, in our platform, you can put in, you know, whether it's I'm looking for uh, cucumbers and here's the date range and maybe I even have the lot code. I can literally pull that data in seconds, right? Um, and and so that, you know, that driver now is where we're seeing more adoption across the chain. Before it was kind of like I said, more focused at the end of the chain because partners were demanding data from their suppliers. And we've had a couple of episodes where we've focused on FISMA 204, but and, and Frank Yanis most uh, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. most recently, um, uh, arguably the architect of the rule from the FDA yep. uh, has was just on. But you know, I think his perspective would be from um, the designing. The, the rule, you see the implementing of the rule because it's your tools that are being used to, to, to manage all that data. One of the things that really surprised me as a relative newbie to this area is that supermarkets, um, at least my understanding is, they tended to sort of have a assumptive model about what's going where. I just assumed that they knew everything about where everything was all of the time. And it really seems like they don't. They may know what gets shipped from their distribution center, theoretically at least. Um, but the, the kind of the record of what's actually in the store is, uh, at least for some very uh, large ones, then uh, is is kind of uh, assumptive. You know, we assume if we shipped it, it arrived. And you know, my understanding is that's not adequate for FISMA 204. Is that correct? Right. So um, to date, most companies were tracking, here's what I need, right? And so I need a case of this. I need, you know, a jar of that, et cetera. And that's true both for restaurants and for grocery. Um, now with FISMA 204, it's it's not just the item, it's I need the lot, you know, mm -hmm. the lot information for each of those items. So if I get three boxes of lettuce, there might be three different lots 
right? Or two different lots, maybe two of the boxes, yes. you know, or lot A and one box is lot Z. And so um, that piece is the big differentiator because when you think about tracking products at lot level, um, if I have a truckload of product and I understand what's on each and every pallet, I can do that with paper and I can do that with electronic forms today, right? Pallet number one is lot A. Pallet number two is maybe a mixed lot A and B. Mm -hmm. da, da, da. I can track that very easily. But once I cut the shrink wrap and boxes are going to the store or to the restaurant, that is the point where you have to figure, companies have to figure out how am I going to capture that data? And that could be through um, some companies are, are arguing, well, I can do that using the information from my slot. Well, usually slots in a warehouse have two pallets in them. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes those two pallets have different lots. And when yes. you replenish, I have a couple boxes left over from a third pallet that are now in that slot. So I can give you a ballpark, right? It could be A, B, or C, and maybe there's a D because there was a mixed pallet in there. But I can't be precise, right? Because I don't know exactly what the uh, selector chose. If I use line of sight scanning, or if I use RFID, or if I use um, even some of the vision tools, um, those can tell me, hey, I saw you pull this box, or you told me you pulled this box, right? Right. And so that's where some of the the um, issues come into play for what you just described, right? I know approximately yeah. what went to the store, but I don't know for sure. And, and we've even run into that, for example... Um, a lot of, of companies that were early adopters of tech-enabled traceability, if you scan order selection, that's great. You're in the warehouse. I scan the boxes, and these are the order that's going to store number one, two, three. But while I'm on the truck, I walk into the the store, uh, or maybe the, the, the store before I get to you, I realize they're completely out of tomatoes. I didn't. They didn't order any tomatoes, so I'm going to pull one of the boxes from your order and give it to this store. Mm -hmm. I know I deliver tomatoes, but if I don't do any sort of tracking, I have no idea which box of tomatoes went to store one and which boxes of tomatoes, right? I knew what was headed to store number two, but one of those boxes never made it, right? So depending on if you do um, at order selection or at point of delivery, Right. Point of delivery says I'm standing in front of the back door. These are the boxes that went in the door. Right. Yes. That's different. So that's why we have critical tracking events as <laughs> to use the, the FISMA tour for uh, vernacular. We have yes. critical tracking events where you need to ideally be scanning or capturing in some uh, uh, reliable way, accurate way, what's shipped, but also what's received. And do you have a sense of what proportion of food retailers, uh, restaurants, uh, grocery oh. stores, are scanning everything that comes in the back door today, uh, which is presumably what they're going to have to do for when the, when the rule goes, uh, starts being enforced in January 2026? Um, so I don't have numbers on that, but I can say from experience that whenever possible, we integrate with inventory management systems. So if your teams have a handheld of some sort, right? Um, yes. We will integrate with that because that act of capturing the order as it's, you know, coming in the door 
um, you're doing inventory management and you just keep on doing that, but also send us that data because that's yes. a traceability event. That's a receiving yes. event. Now, where yes. there are challenges with that, a lot of, uh, for example, a lot of restaurants have night drops. And so the driver comes, he unlocks the back door. I put some boxes into the ambient area. Some go in the fridge and some go in the freezer. You know, those may or may not have been scanned coming in or, you know, when the staff gets there in the morning and receives those items. Because sometimes the drivers actually put product on the shelves. Mm -hmm. Some leave it in the middle of the cooler and then the person who comes in makes sure that the order was correct. So depending on what agreements you have with your distributors, you may or may not mm -hmm. be able to collect that data with line of sight scanning, but I could capture it with some sort of RFID scanning. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that's um, very interesting. Let's just wind it back a little bit because uh, I feel like we didn't uh, do your company justice in explaining the 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 level of uh, the, the breadth of customers you have. How how many customers does uh, Trust Trustwell have? How many customers does Food Logic uh, have? You know, I I have to apologize because I don't know the exact number, and I should have looked that up for you. But, um, uh, you know, it's what I will say is it's it's um, the the it's a very impressive number of just the breadth of companies, especially, you know, I'm uh, the the Genesis side of our product. It's everyone from um, academia and dietitians oh, yeah. to large QSRs, grocery stores, CPG companies and everyone in between, because. When you think of labeling, there's not only product labeling, but there's also menu labeling requirements, right? And there oh, are yeah. some regulations that are in place that say, you know, restaurants have to do X, Y, Z and, and have this menu labeling available. Um, but they also need that information for their websites, right? And so the tools on that side of our business calculate all that information. And so um, uh, that uh, uh, piece of our business, I'm not 100% sure, you know, what the numbers are but there's there was quite a bit of overlap of folks who were genesis users that also were a food logic um customer and so that was a nice you know it, that was a nice uh compliment like i said because these these two platforms um address different parts of your uh business operations very good well according to your website as i look at it then there's uh, uh 120,000 plus locations that are are covered obviously that's you know many more locations than restaurants but it's it's quite a few customers anyway to uh, many hundreds um so you have some pretty good visibility what would you say the readiness is of the industry for fisma all done and dusted just um <laughs> putting a few uh, dots on the i's and crosses on the t's or? what i will say from personal experience and this was true even um, uh, pre-FISMA 204. There are certain categories that I had mentioned earlier that had um, business reasons to adopt uh, enhanced barcodes uh, and other um, data, you know, AIDC technologies. Mm -hmm. So the produce industry, produce traceability initiative, every time I walk into a warehouse, whether it be for a grocer or a broadliner, et cetera, when we walk down the produce aisle, 85% of those boxes are already marked with a GS1128. And so 
what's my, you know, I'm so happy to see this because I used to work for GS1 and we use GS1 120. We can accept GS1 128 here at FoodLogic. So I'm so excited to see them. And then my first question is, do you, do you gather lot information? Do you use those dates to manage freshness? Do you scan these codes? And the, most folks say, nope. <laughs> yeah. Where they do scan, this is one of the other categories that's been using it for a long time. Proteins and seafood have been using um, GS1 128s for a very long time. Um, one of the business reasons for that beyond uh, lot information, et cetera, is that a lot of those products are catch weight. So I sell my box of steaks by weight. I sell the, the oh. tuna, you know, that whole tuna by weight. And that's how I get paid, right? So I need right. to have that information on the box so that when when I deliver that box to you, you understand box number, box A was, you know, 150 bucks and box B was 200 bucks. And the reason why, because of the weight, right? So, so proteins and produce have been using it for a long time. For FISMA 204, where we've got a lot of education to do, are the nut butters, shell eggs, ready-to-eat salads, um, some of these categories that just, they haven't had an event or um, a, a, a driver bringing them to uh, traceability. The other thing I will say is that there's a number of scenarios that we're going to have to figure out how to address. So a real easy example is fresh herbs are on the list. There are very few restaurants that get a whole case of cilantro, for example. Um, usually fresh herbs come in these great big boxes. You open it up and there are bags inside that have sleeves, six sleeves of cilantro, or it'll have two inner packs, right? So you order um, by the inner pack, not by the case. And mm -hmm. so in my experience, I have seen some herbs that the bags have a 128 label on them. Um, they certainly could have another data carrier, right? If, if the partner chose to use that. Um, and there, I've also seen where you open up the bag, the box and none of the bags are marked, right? All there's nothing on there. So, um, distributors are going to have to figure out how do I gather lot level information for those break case items? Cause break case is a reality in our supply chains. How am I going to capture this data? So that's so there's a lot of work to do to label, to yeah. marshal the data in order to label. And then there's the question of what's my uh, uh, automatic identify uh, carrier uh, yes. that I'm going to use? Am I going to use a, uh, a 1D barcode? Am I going to use RFID? Am I going to use ambient IoT? And each yeah. of those has different pros and cons. Um, but uh, I'm kind of interested and it all costs money. Yes. Uh, you know, even a barcode costs money because you need to organize yourself around uh, printing it. And it's, you know, yep. people costs to scan them. Uh, uh, whereas some of the other ones, there may be more infrastructure costs, but less people costs. So it's all uh, yes. money. So the question in my mind is where does the money come from to do what is at the heart of what you do, which in my mind is supply chain visibility. One of the things that you... Uh, your company enables is visibility of the supply chain. And it can be used for all sorts of things. You already enumerated a bunch of them. But um, I'm looking at a lot of the food safety organizations, and I'm guessing they don't have millions and millions of dollars of budget for, for this. I could be wrong. And so I'm interested in what your view is 
uh, working for a company that that sells software. Presumably, you like being paid for that software. Um, <laughs> yes. Who is it that is funding these traceability projects, and how does that get unlocked? Um, how do you get people to say, "Well, it's the right thing to do"? Um, right. So, what I will say to that first is that you know, for most companies, this can't just be a food safety or a traceability initiative. That's just right out of the gate, right? <laughs> this, they have to um, uh, address other problems. Usually operations is a group that, you know, keep it simple. Please streamline, you know, our processes. And, oh, and by the way, I'm resource constrained, right? So whatever you can do to make our operations uh, easier, more accurate, right? They are willing to, you know, explore those options. Um, oftentimes, uh, you know, we we see a whole host of folks coming in because the IT team wants to know what's going on, and they usually have um, influence. They might not be the one writing the check, um, but yeah, operations usually is a very, um, uh, you know, they may be the ones um, uh, that are the de final decision maker, but they are relying on input from all these other teams because food safety needs it for this purpose, logistics needs it for this, warehousing needs it for this, et cetera. And those could all be part of one business, right? Um, and so that piece is very interesting. And I will say from a food logic standpoint, um, I like to say that we are data carrier agnostic, so mm -hmm. I will take <laughs> whatever yeah. you choose. And so GS1128 has been prevalently used. That's where most folks are, you know, able to scan today. But we and that's a barcode standard. That's just, just for, a standard yeah. barcode. We call that a 1D. But lots of folks are interested in using 2D. And we do have some folks using 2D. So that'd be like a data matrix or a QR code that can hold 2,300 characters. That's a whole lot more. The 128 can only hold 48 characters. It's not a lot of information. Um, then we get into, we do have some customers at, at FoodLogic who use RFID. And so it's it's frictionless. Uh, you know, we're using radio frequency. So no more line of sight, no more staff members yep. standing over a box that won't scan. We are, you know, either using um, stanchions that are, you know, at the dock door or at the back of the restaurant and or supplemented with things like a wand, et cetera. So even though you might have a staff member that has to go into the cooler and do inventory, it's literally taking seconds. You know, if, if we do the the evolution clipboard, okay, they're going to be in there. They're going to get cold before they leave the freezer. Uh, you know, line of sight scanning, again, they're going to be in there for a while. Um, RFID, you know, totally different ballgame. So it's been interesting for us because... We've had to do a lot of education with solution providers to make sure they understand here are the components that we need to create those critical tracking events in order to do whole chain traceability. Once Good. you get that piece in place, regardless of what data carrier they're using, then it's a matter of, okay, how are you going to then implement that across your supply chain? So like with RFID, we've had to educate our customers who are so excited about this technology, and it's a great technology. But I've had to explain to them, you can't just get rid of that 128 label and go straight to RFID because there's always going to be someone in the supply chain who doesn't have RFID yet, right? Yes. So you need to have the label 
so that a human can read it, scan it, etc. And then for those who have RFID capabilities, the readers can pick up the information. And that's been a learning curve for a lot of companies who thought, oh, I can just, I can get rid of the old and go straight Good. to the new. And it's like, they actually need to live together for a while, right? As, as the industry starts to adopt these new technologies. Well, that gets me on to another topic, which is the exchange of data between the different players in yeah. that supply chain. And whilst, um, you know, the, there's FISMA doesn't require you, the retailer, to know absolutely everything about where the food came from. You, you do, do need a, a source lot ID, right? Um, but we're facing... Um, more and more need, it seems to me at least, for there to be more exchange of data between suppliers and distributors, distributors and, and, and retailers than ever before. And how is that, or A, is that true? Do, do you agree? Yeah, I, I agree, yes. <laughs> how, how are there people, yes. people approaching it? Um, so for the foundational piece, you know, FISMA 204, um, I like to break it down into three buckets, right? There's product data, there's location data, and there's the events, right? The critical tracking events. So that foundational uh, piece, right? The product and location data, that doesn't change very much, right? I mean, it does from time to time, but um, uh, that's foundational data that trading partners need to be synchronizing. We talked about the GDSN, right? Synchronizing that data, sharing that information ahead of time. And most partners and supply chains today have some sort of supplier portal, supplier management, right? We have those tools here at FoodLogic where you're gathering all that information, right? Tell me about this product. Um, tell me about these locations. The event data is dynamic, right? It's it's ever-changing. Um, you know, it's, it's order to order, it's product to product, et cetera. So, you know, that information, um, capturing it and sharing it, today we do a lot of that today with orders, right? I'm, I'm sending you a truckload of my lettuce to the distribution center. Here's the advanced ship. You know, you sent me a purchase order. I'm sending you an advanced ship notice. Uh, you know, there's at, at the door, there's going to be an inspection and they're going to check the load and make sure it's what you say it is. And they're going to run their temperature checks and all sorts of things. So today we gather a whole bunch of data about uh, these transactions but that that last piece of, you know, traceability lot code and the lot code source, which is a new um, uh, piece of information that we have to capture, there are some additional pieces of data that folks just were not capturing um, uh, in those transactions, and now they need to add that to the data set as well as part of their operations. Right, the person who's receiving it needs to make sure are these things present. Right? Did we get mm -hmm. these things? And so you can do that um, electronically, right? You could have systems manage that. You could have people manage that, or you, or a little bit of both. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what are the systems that people uh, have been using and you think will be using to exchange that data? We had a interesting conversation last week at the FISMA 204 working group at GS1 about yes. <laughs> EPCIS. Yep. And I, you know, uh, full disclosure, I'm biased heavily in favor of EPCIS nope. because the company that pays my uh, paycheck, William Ambient IoT Player, you know, we collect things like temperature data from yep. the, the tags and humidity data. And we want that to be passed up and down the supply chain. And no way is that going to get passed up and down on a barcode. So we, we want right. to see EPCIS. But I have concerns about whether, and I think obviously GS1 wants people to use EPCIS. It's a new standard and that's the business that they're in. And presumably, I assume that you, you guys, uh, you folks are in favor of it because it's you know another reason to use a, a proper system like the one that you sell to exchange that data. But um, where do you see we are in the adoption of EPCIS? And uh, um, I'm just interested in your thoughts about that. Yeah. So EPCIS, which I think is a, uh, you know, for the, the um, listeners to understand, uh, you know, it's a GS1 standard. For exchanging data, they have um, uh, a whole host of transactions that can be exchanged, and this is different than traditional EDI. So, if we take mm -hmm. a step back, you know, in a lot of our food supply chains, trading partners are using um, you know EDI today to manage certain transactions, but EDI does not manage all of the. There are not EDI data sets for all of the critical tracking events, for example, that have been identified in FISMA 204. Um, and so EDI serves a purpose. And, and I think that there's companies are going to continue to share information using EDI because that's how I tell you about what's on the truck and what's coming, et cetera. You know, uh, uh, and I can add additional attributes and send that information. However, um, once we tar start talking about um, you know, sharing uh, uh, traceability data and those data sets and, and it needs to go from system to system and, and all of that, companies need to think beyond EDI, right? So whatever my role is in the supply chain, shipping is just one little piece of it, right? If I'm a manufacturer, I receive things, I transform things, I ship, I might, you know, do some other activities. Um, so when we get over to EPCIS, number one, it has all sorts of other uses, which we want to get into. But the other piece is um, uh, when we talk about systems and trading partners, um, FoodLogic, for example, was part of um, some pilots that we did with GS1 US with the seafood industry. And so there were a number of solution providers. Um, we had a retailer and then some suppliers. So the solution providers were um, FoodLogic, IBM Food Trust, Right.io, 
Uh, I think whole chain was a part of it. And then um, the uh, retailer was Walmart. And then the suppliers, mm-hmm. we had Beaver Street, Bumblebee, uh, Chicken of the Sea. And so gathering data, right? So so for those critical tracking events, the, the capture of the um, information about the products that we were exchanging um, and then sharing that data along the chain. Um, what we knew was the solution providers all knew that we could use EPCIS to share data. We knew it would work. Part of that pilot that took the longest was the data gathering from the partners, them actually going mm-hmm. back in their systems and mm-hmm. pulling the data. So we know that as companies are getting ready for this regulation, that's going to take a long time, right? To understand where is all this data sitting in my system. But getting to the data exchange with EPCIS, um, we recognized, for example, um, you know, uh, uh, that, uh, for example, FoodLogic and IBM were making a handshake during the, the pilot. And one of the things that we we kept pointing out uh, as part of our findings was, hey, we're all known entities sharing data, you know, in this in this pilot. What happens when we're not known entities, right? And I need that information. Number one, how do I know that I need to go to the food trust to get data for this partner, and I need to go to Ripe to get data for this partner? Mm-hmm. And then the second piece, once I do get to the right door, how do we make that handshake that says, yes, you know, I can, you're, you're approved to share data with, right? So similar to the GDSN, which we don't have a GDSN for traceability, you know, how are we going to do that choreography of data request and data sharing? Yeah. Cards on the table. I, I I am a believer in the need for this hub or network to do that exchange. I think it's something that we as an industry have to come together to to put in place. A little bit like I mean, think about the credit card networks. Yes. You maybe don't like them, but that's the 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 lubricant that has enabled commerce between parties that don't know each other. Uh, I can have a credit card. Uh, that's issued uh, by a bank and the bank of the retailer can be a completely different bank, but we can do business together and it streamlines everything. And I really think we need something like that to exchange this EPCIS uh, data. And in my opinion, it needs to be something that a lot of the main players have joint ownership in. We can't just hand the keys over to one company that's going to be in the middle. There probably need to be some choices of different networks, and those networks need to be funded by a lot of the, the players that have a lot to, to gain uh, from from doing all this. So that's my soapbox moment. Yes. Uh, have to see whether it's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, and, and I will tell but, you just from a historical note, those conversations have been happening since the inception of EPCIS. How about that? I can, so, I can, I can believe yes. it. And I realize, you know, thank you very much for kind of winding us back and explaining uh, in in uh, normal English uh, what we were talking about there. If anyone's interested, then there is a Mr. Beacon interview with Dominic Gennard, who was one of the key people in the definition of uh, EPCIS, him and many other people uh, as part of the GS1 standards work. And we have an interview with him on that as well as Digital Link and Melanie Use, uh, also another Perfect. GS1 uh, player. So there are a lot of resources there. Um, so let's see. I did want to ask you a few things. Oh, yes. Uh, blockchain. Um, 
I know I saw that uh, FoodLogic had participated in a blockchain trial. I don't know when that was started. Is it still going or any any anything you can share about that? Or? Yep. Uh, no. So we we now we are a cloud-based uh, traceability yes. platform. Um, mm -hmm. We have done, like I said, we've done interoperability pilots. Um, yes. with some of the blockchains, uh, uh, blockchain partners, et cetera. What's been interesting with blockchain is that, um, you know, it, uh, uh, you know, companies were, were uh, at one point interchanging blockchain and traceability. They saw them as one and the same, and they weren't understanding what blockchain actually was, right? And what it Absolutely. enables. So yes. now that we've had the evolution, there certainly are there are great partners out there that use blockchain as their technology for you know storing um, uh, traceability data. However, I will say just um, you know in in industry uh, adoption and use, as well as what we've learned about blockchain just as a whole, not in food, but just in as a whole, um, you know, is blockchain the right technology right now? Um, considering you know the the amount of energy that you have to generate to even produce the you know uh, 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 blocks in the chain, um, and and also um, speed to market, right? When we talk about the food industry, timing is everything, right? That lettuce, the minute you cut it from the field, it's it's withering, right? The clock is ticking, yeah, and you need yeah. to get it to your trading partners as quickly as possible, and. In some of our early work, it's like the blockchains um, just were not able to handle the volume and the speed at which the data needed to be not only committed to the databases, but then shared with other trading partners. And yes. so you can't have that lag, right? Yes. Now, I will say that then brings up the question of data quality. And um, certainly you can have bad data in a blockchain just as quickly as you can have bad data in the cloud or in your own backend systems. So I think if we exchange the idea of companies certainly can be flexible on the technology that they choose to store their data, but you need to be vigilant about having good, clean, accurate yeah. data. No, I completely agree. And uh, I think blockchain doesn't guarantee interoperability in, in actual yep. fact it creates some challenges and that's what people want visibility interoperability and obviously you have to have data integrity but i think you can have that in other ways as well and um, um yeah 100 percent. and I, and i will say too i think what we've seen with that interoperability piece and integrations which are so important with this is lots and lots of companies food logic included offer um, API capabilities, right? So our entire platform is built on API. You can put things in, take things out. Uh, you can do that with products and locations and events and, and all sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, recognizing that this data is valuable, right? And so if, if you put your program together in that you're collecting good, clean, accurate data, that you're checking for compliance, right? You're validating that all of the required fields are there that um, you know, if it's a G10, that it's got the right check digit, if it's a code list, right, we've got the right values, that data quality is so important because then you can use the data for all those other you know, uh, things we've talked about. So um, you know, using it outside of that food safety compliance piece 
and and taking it to other teams, right? Finance, marketing, inventory, et cetera, and challenging them and saying, you know, how would you like to use this data, right? Because it it's it is valuable information. We've even had trading partners um, as natural disasters have happened. They've looked at their tra- traceability data as part of a larger data set to make decisions on where are we going to ship product, what stores are we reopening, and things like that. I mean, it's really powerful information. Okay, very powerful. So unfortunately, we've got to wrap up at least this segment. We've got another segment that we already recorded, which I think people will really enjoy. Uh, you, you've spoken with great authority, and I think people will understand why if they listen to the second part of our show. But before I go, I've got to ask you about a certain Netflix uh, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, documentary <laughs> called Poison. Um, you know, I think everyone in the food business, it's been on their radar. I assume you've seen it. And if you did, then what did you think of it? So I have seen it and I will share a personal story with you. So um, I have a nephew who um, unfortunately uh, got um, E. coli uh, poisoning. Uh, he, uh, when he was 18 months old, ate some hamburger that was not fully cooked. He wound up in the hospital. He had HUS. We have had a kidney transplant and a pancreas transplant. So oh my goodness. The, the combination of the storyline of the baby in the hospital, I've been there. It is, it's heart-wrenching. And the teenager, so the girl who ate the salad and then she talked yes. about, you know, how she got so sick. So from that equali event from childhood, my nephew couldn't play sports in high school because he was on dialysis. He mm-hmm. had, you know, all sorts of health issues that he had to overcome. And it really, um, uh, you know, to see um, the film, you know, people have their opinions. Some people think it's the worst thing in the world. Some think, you know, they're, that they didn't tell the whole story. Um, what I will say is that in that film, we saw two people's stories and they very accurately told their stories. And yes. I think if if people were aware of how many other stories are out there that are literally... um families um, waiting for a donor, that's a horrible, horrible place to be because um, you can donate, you and I can donate a kidney and we still have one, you know, that yeah. we, we can use. But if you need a pancreas, you, you're waiting for somebody's child to die. And that yeah. is a horrible place to be. So I am very much a crusader of food safety. I'm the person at the family event that they get mad when I tell them they have to throw the potato salad away because it's been sitting out too long. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, you know, everyone gets a thermometer for a meat thermometer for Christmas, right? Like it's just, um, you know, it, it, people can choose, right? Lots of people, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a choice every day of, you know, what am I going to eat and how am I going to manage it? But I think yes. um, that the film definitely, um, you know, brought to light some of the things that consumers need to be aware of, but yes. also, um, you know, things that 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 have happened in our our supply chain. And so, you know, I'll end with this since we're doing this podcast is, you know, we have made great strides since those things happened in technology, 
in AIDC, right, in software programs, et cetera. So the, you know, I see part of this challenge as being on us, right? How do we yeah. keep that from happening to another family? I know. Uh, yeah. And I, and it was absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I think it is an important movie for people to see. It obviously has an agenda. They're trying to drive, pull on people's heartstrings, but the facts are the facts. And, uh, uh, it gives you empathy with the tragedy that, that, that impacts people. And you can make your own judgment as to whether they were fair on the companies and the people that are depicted. But I think it's really important movie. Poison uh, is the name of it. And Netflix is the, uh, is the channel. So, Julie, did you manage to come up with three songs that are meaningful to you? Um, so I did. So uh, a little known fun fact about me is that um, I like to sing jazz standards. And so I will do this oh. in bars in Chicago or at your wedding or, uh, yeah, family events. So um, my go to song that I usually sing any, you know, anytime I'm singing it's called um, Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans? And it's an old song that was sung by, you know, folks like Rosemary Clooney and, you know, uh, Ella Fitzgerald and, and you know, jazz greats like that. So, yeah, so that's a fun fact. Some of my coworkers know that, but now everybody on this podcast knows. I that. love that. Yes. This is a first for us. Oh, and I'm super impressed, <laughs> super impressed. So is this like, you know, once in a blue moon or are you out there regularly crooning? Um, I, I was regularly crooning before COVID, but then after oh. COVID, you know, we got to get our musicians back on stage. So, uh, so yeah. I have not, uh, I've not done it at a bar, but I have sung at friends, uh, weddings, uh, yeah, since COVID. So yes. That is awesome. I am now thinking of a good opportunity to ask you to sing at some event, uh, just to really shock everyone. Exactly. Uh, that would be, that would exactly. be awesome. All right. Exactly. That's number one. Well, that's number one. Uh, number two, so um, my mother was a music teacher, and so she played the piano and other instruments. And she had this songbook. It was called Songs of the 70s, and she played all these songs. So a song that's a favorite of mine is Stevie Wonder's Superstition. Oh, yes. Where I first heard that song was my mother playing it on the piano. And then when I heard it on the radio, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's a whole different, whole different thing. So yeah, so Superstition's on my, you know, top, top of the list. I love that. It's uh, what an incredible musician. I, I've actually yes. been uh, getting like many uh, middle-aged people getting back into vinyl. And so I've been buying old Stevie Wonder uh, oh. vinyl and and it sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. So, yeah. Great and it's choice. amazing too, to see how, what influence he's had, how many people sample his music, yes. how many people have re-recorded his songs. You know, there are songs that people think, oh, that's John Legend. It's like, no, no, that's Stevie Wonder, right? So it's, uh, yeah, he's he's amazing. Very talented. Absolutely amazing. Come on, wait, what's number three? So number three, I was thinking about this, and a question that I like to ask folks is, what was your first concert, right? So, which is a fun question. And so my first concert where, you know, went with my friends was the Stray Cats, 
And uh, so the song uh, that I chose was Rock This Town, which anytime I hear that, you know, I can't not get up and dance. That's uh, so are they an American band or a British band? They were big in England. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I think I, I would have to look that up. But that oh. whole rockabilly 80s, you know, uh, thing and, and they were just, you know, yeah, they, they hit the scene and it just, you know, it's it's fun music. So, yeah, so that's my third one. Awesome. I love that question as well. And my um, my first concert was Thin Lizzy at the Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, obviously, Phil Lynott's still alive yes. and he did an amazing job. And I have to, I was pretty young. I was in my kind of mid to early teens. And I remember being, you know, London in, that must have been in the 70s, uh, kind of a bit rough. So there were a lot of people with long hair who were thrashing around in the audience, but it was amazing. And I, so That's anyway. Incredible. Uh, That's thank a you great for, answer. Yeah. Thank you for triggering that um, nostalgic feeling in me. <laughs> so um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about how you got to the role that you have at the moment. And I, I was kind of snooping and I didn't realize that you you were a veteran of GS1. Nope. But before that, it looks like you were, again, and I think you're known for being, you know, an, author, an authority in our industry and not, um, and not uh, shy in, uh, in coming forward to speak. In fact, I, I, I really laughed the other day we were, I think it was in a, a FISMA 204 working group meeting, um, always fun, uh, at uh, GS1. You said, oh, just fit me with a lapel mic. And uh, so I'm assuming that this side of your character started started early, if, if, if I'm right in saying that you were class president. And it's, uh, yes, I, and I was class president. So there you go. It, uh, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so my uh, food and beverage career, I started at Coors Brewing Company uh, out in Golden, Colorado, which is a beautiful facility and um, just a really interesting company. And I worked for them before uh, they merged with Molson, uh, SAB Miller, any of that. So it was still family-owned brewery. And the neat thing was they were self-sufficient. So they did their own malting. They made their own bottles and cans. They had a, a uh, they worked with Ball Corporation and had facilities on campus. Um, you know, I would drive to work every day and you could tell by the smell what point in the brewing process we were at, right? So if you if it smelled like cereal, right, we were roasting and, and malting. If, it, you know, if it, um, you know, you could tell when they were brewing and things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, all the way through to uh, when they would clean out the tanks and, and um, they would mash the uh, uh, take the leftovers, mash it into pellets, and then the farmers would pull up and bring their trucks and then take that away for feed for their um, animals. So it really was an, uh, a really interesting company to work for. And one of the neat things they did that really helped open my eyes to manufacturing was you had to take a class that was called, you know, Coors 101, and you learned every single job. Like you were on the brewery floor, you were at the plants, um, you did a ride along with a driver who was delivering product to the stores. Um, you know, it, it, you just saw every part of the business. And so um, it really was interesting to see that. Now, I was in the IT department, so I was working on 
early days of collecting data from our distribution partners and a number of um, uh, retailers were starting their EDI programs. So they wanted to do electronic invoicing and things like that. And so uh, they were all, they were asking it of all the breweries. And so we didn't care which um, solution you chose. We just needed you to start sending EDI messages. So uh, Miller, Anheuser-Busch and Coors were all helping their uh, distributor partners get ready for that. And, and so that's really where, um, you know, from that, that IT side, I moved into, um, you know, uh, just master data, you know, data gathering. Um, but my boss left Coors to go work for this internet startup called Transora. And mm-hmm. Transora was a, a company that was funded by um, manufacturers. It was going to be this data hub, if you will. And so they had um, uh, master data, which we now know as the GDSN. Um, mm-hmm. They had uh, coupons. They had logistics. We were doing CPFR. Uh, we we were going to be everything to everyone. And um, slowly but surely, you know, the the uh, things like the GDSN came about, and so we were one of the first data pools, Transora, UCCNet, uh, and others. And then eventually, the mergers started, and um, UCCNet, which was owned by. Uh, uh, the Uniform Code Council, and then eventually GS1 US, they um, purchased Transora. So that now, that data pool is now One World Sync. So if, if your listeners are familiar with One World Sync. Oh, so that's the, like one of the biggest uh, yep. GDSNs. So just for people that don't know, what's the GDSN? So the GDSN is the Global Data Synchronization Network. And um, so I started working for uh, Transora in uh, November of 2000. And so um, at the time, there was this idea of how can we get manufactured data where it's a one-to-many model. And so that manufacturers have one version of the truth. They load all their data into this network and then trading partners. It's a publish and subscribe model. Trading partners can access that data um, so I load all my, you know, crackers and cookies and chips and whatever else I make. And then trading partners who are, are requesting that data can request either data directly from me as a supplier, or if, if they want to put out a general request and say, I'm looking for chips, cookies, whatever, uh, in the U S like you can really narrow, um, or, or have a very wide request. And then in this network, there's something called the global registry. And think of that as like the traffic cop who's directing the traffic. So requests come in and I don't need to know where this data lives. I make a request. I'm looking for uh, chocolate chip cookies. The registry takes a look and says, who has registered chocolate chip cookies? Oh, these 100 companies. They forward that request to those parties. The parties take a look and say, yep, I want to do business with this partner or no, I don't know who this is. And then once you make that handshake to re- to release data, to share data, um, the partner receives it. They decide what they want to use and, and keep. And from that point forward, once you do the handshake that says, yes, I want to synchronize on this item, anytime there's an update, if I lower my sodium, if I, if I change my corrugate, if I... Um, rebrand, et cetera, any and all updates get sent to every single partner that has subscribed to that item. And so the beauty of it, I don't have to remember, oh, I need to send it to Steve and I need to send it to Bob and I need to send it to Sue. Nope. 
you know, the the network manages both the connecting partners and continuous synchronization. And particularly useful if Steve, Bob, and Sue have online stores where you oh, can my goodness. buy that product. The changes yeah. in how companies use the data is it's like a hockey stick as far as growth, right? Because where we started was order management systems, mostly things that were behind the scenes. And then companies started adding online ordering platforms. And they had platforms, for example, in food service, right? My my restaurants can order from my distribution platform and things like that. And so connecting all this data, synchronizing it, sharing it, et cetera, now that has moved into images. And when we were doing images, it was old school planograms. If you remember like the old school Apollo software and things like that. Now, right, everything's got to be 3D. I've got to be able to spin it around and see the nutrition facts panel and the barcode and um, this and that and connect to additional uh, information about maybe it's organic or fair trade and all that. So, um, you know, the the data set that we started with and where we are today is like, it's like you're on two different planets. Well, we're thinking, we're working on this um, browser for the physical world. It's a, it's a mobile app um, uh, called Living Web. Um, so it's not on the app store yet, so don't look for it, but hopefully it will be by the end of the year. And the idea is you point the camera at the product and um, basically you can get metadata about that product superimposed over their AR image. And so we're, what we're thinking is, well, we could just pull those 360 degree images from one of these GDSN repositories and use that to train the, the AR. So that's how the app recognizes the product. We'll have to see if it works, but that's the uh, theory. So GDSN is like a GS1 standard for that master data. It's, 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 it's right. um, and then you go to different services that make it available in your geography. Is that right? right? So, so there are standards for the uh, attributes themselves. There's a global data dictionary that defines all of the attributes. There is uh, choreography that is required for data pools to share data, and I'll I'll talk about um, you know the the data pools are the parties that provide the service. So um, when we talk about the global data synchronization network kind of like our cell phones. I choose uh, my cell phone provider based on what equipment they offer, right? What what phones do they have? What programs do they have? Same thing is true for the GDSN. I choose my GDSN data pool based on the services and the support and the tools that they provide. Once I'm in the network, it's very similar to cell phones. I don't need to know what data pool you're on. What I need to know is, um, tell me what your corporate GLN is. There's something called an IP or an information provider GLN. Once I know what that is, you and I can start um, connecting on that on the GDSN. And so the neat thing is just like cell phones, right? What's your number? I can call you, I can text you, I can uh, you know, do different things. Um, but the parties within the network know how to, the data pools know how to talk to each other. They follow certain choreography and they are um, certified. They, they go through a certification um, to be a data pool. And so there's, I can't remember what the number is, but there's, there's um, you know, I would say probably upwards of 60 data pools around the globe that are managing mm -hmm. this data. Very good. So you ended up at GS1 through acquisition. Through um, acquisition. Yep. Yep. So we were a data pool and then I, I um, 
worked with a number of, of uh, accounts. They threw me at the beverage guys because I came from beverage. Mm-hmm. So I managed, you know, all the the sodas and juices and beer and all those different things um, because I understood the the whole um, uh, direct store, uh, you know, DSD model. And so I worked with a lot of them, but I had a lot of um, CPG companies that I worked with as well. And then um, once we merged, that's at the time when the food service initiative was just getting started at GS1. And so they asked me to join that team uh, and I worked uh, on that project um, until I, I left GS1 in 2017. So helped like stand up the food service initiative, um, help companies understand how to um, utilize barcodes. Because if you think about food service back in 2009, they weren't using much identification at all. Not even ITF-14s and UPCs. Lots of boxes had nothing on them. Really? So helping them um, understand how to use GS1 identifiers. Uh, and then from that, it was it was using the identifiers, using the GDSN. And now we're uh, working on the traceability uh, piece, which was always part of the vision um, of that initiative. So GS1 US has a, a food service initiative. And they have a grocery initiative, and, and those two work hand in hand um, uh, to you know help industry understand how to use you know uh, identify products, capture data, and then share data. And how did you end up going from GS1 to FoodLogic IQ? Right. So uh, you know, I at I had reached a point. I I'd been at um, GS1 Transora for over sixteen years. And um, I very much enjoyed, uh, you know, working with lots of different companies, learning lots of different things, right? Because you'd be switching from, you know, beverages to meat to produce, et cetera, um, and, and really enjoyed it. But one of the things that I missed was manufacturing. So when I started my job search, I was, if you had asked me back then, I was 100% sure I was going back to manufacturing because I wow. really enjoyed uh, my time at Coors Brewing. And... So I started my search, and um, when I started my search, I was reaching out to all my contacts, and and I had reached out to Food Logic, and so I'm talking to uh, my my uh, colleague Andy Kennedy, who worked with GS1 quite a bit. Um, he was one of the founders of Food Logic, and so uh, when I um, reached out to him, we had a conversation, and then the next thing I knew, I was interviewing for a role um, at Food Logic, and so I went from. Um, helping industry create the standards, and now I work for a company that implements the standards. Very good, very good. And uh, did uh, your time at Coors turn you into a beer connoisseur, or was it like too much beer? I never want to see another uh, pint again. Um, well, a, a little bit of both. What was interesting is at the time, um, you know, all the microbreweries and the micro uh, craze really hadn't started. But at Coors, their master brewers, they at the time were making brown ales, pumpkin ales. Uh, that's when they invented. I was there when um, Blue Moon was introduced. Um, oh. So they had all these beers that people did not understand, right? What is this? And they had a really neat program where um, they made seasonal beers that they only sold to restaurants in Denver. Oh. So they'd make a couple kegs in their microbrewery of say a Christmas ale and then certain restaurants would have that available. And so I learned to love all different kinds of beer working there. 
but the beer craze. Um, Denver had quite a few breweries before I left, but when I moved to Chicago, there was one microbrewery here, and that was 23 years ago. There was one microbrewery here, and it was Goose Island. Oh. And now there's hundreds of microbreweries in this town, uh, which is really interesting because Chicago was a beer city. Like it, it had a lot of, of brewers and and uh, as did our neighbor Milwaukee. Um, so it was interesting to come from that beer culture to a city that was hadn't even started. So I actually, um, you know, there there's uh, uh, quite a few, um, for example, throughout the city, there's you know, you can go to a bar and get uh, English beers or Scottish, you know, you can get German, etc. So those were the places that I would seek out when I needed my, you know, whatever. I needed a, a, a you know, a Bellhaven or a whatever <laughs> to, to satisfy that. But now, now they're everywhere, right? I could walk to one in my neighborhood. Very good. Well, I feel like um, I'd like to... Um, uh, pull a pint and sit down and talk to talk with you some more about this but we've both got to go yeah so uh i, I want to thank you i've you know this has been delightful wonderful conversation thank you very much yeah it's been great thanks so much steve so thank you very much for listening and maybe watching this uh, episode uh, you are a remarkable person uh, because most people don't stick to the end everyone most people have the attention span of a gnat, something that I battle with myself. And we try and dig deep in these podcasts. And this was a good one, in my opinion, at least. I certainly enjoyed it. Uh, Julie is a great raconteur and uh, an amazing authority. And you understand why, given all the jobs that she has had. So please do stick with us. Uh, we've got an incredible archive of interviews with CEOs of many uh, of the startups that uh, are driving innovation, as well as some of the giants of both standards bodies and companies like Cisco and Google. And whilst I work at Williot, we give 100% of the advertising revenue from any of the adverts you've had to put up with to the Monarch School for Homeless Kids, which is an amazing uh, non-profit. So I'm sure they're grateful to you for the pennies that you've contributed. Hopefully we can get enough together that this becomes meaningful. So until next time, thank you and uh, stay safe.